At MasterCard, we believe that women-owned small businesses are uniquely inspiring. They're pillars of the community and have a measurable impact on the people within them. It's their secret sauce. We are deeply committed to helping address the daily challenges of all Canadian small businesses by putting our technology, cybersecurity solutions, digital resources, and partnerships to work for you every day. Discover them today at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. MasterCard, start something priceless. At Scotiabank, we know how important thriving businesses are for the strength of our economy. Our team of experienced advisors across the country can provide you with tailored advice, leading products, and valuable resources to help achieve all your financial goals. We're here for every future. Let's get started today. Visit us at scotiabank.com slash smallbusiness. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast, where we talk to Canada's most innovative and entrepreneurial leaders and changemakers. I'm your host, Rick Spence, and as a business journalist, editor, and entrepreneur, I've learned what makes Canadian startups special, successful, and scalable. Join me every Tuesday at 10 a.m. ET to hear news stories of Canadian entrepreneurs and learn about the moments that mattered most on their journeys. The Startup Canada podcast is a production of Startup Canada. Don't forget to subscribe to the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're thrilled to have Selena Caesar Chavan. Selena Caesar Chavan is an entrepreneur, a business consultant, a coach, and an international speaker who currently serves part-time as a senior advisor of equity, diversity, and inclusion initiatives and adjunct lecturer at Queen's University. Selena is also an author. Her memoir, Can You Hear Me Now?, was selected as a finalist for the 2021 Shaughnessy Cohen Prize for Political Writing and a Book Award finalist for the Speaker of the Ontario Legislature. Selena is the former Member of Parliament for Whitby, a former Parliamentary Secretary to Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, and former Parliamentary Secretary for International Development. During her term as a member of parliament, Selena was awarded several distinctions, including being named one of Chatelaine Magazine's three Women of the Year 2019. Selena has a Bachelor of Science and MBA in Healthcare Management, an Executive MBA from the Rotman School of Management, and she's currently enrolled in a neuroscience PhD program at Queen's University, exploring the intersection of empathy, leadership, and equity. Selena, welcome to the show. Oh my goodness. Thank you very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. We're excited to have you. Thanks so much. This month is Mental Health Awareness Month, and we'll be talking about this uh, crucial issue all month for the benefit of Canadians, and in particular, our entrepreneurial audience. Uh, it's, it's an issue that doesn't get talked about much in business circles, but it's something we need to to, to get more accustomed to, to talking about. Sometimes it's hard to find leaders who speak openly about their mental health, about their mental health, but you're open about it and you've, you know, embraced it as part of your story. Mm -hmm. so tell us what makes you fearless. It's not necessarily being fearless <laughs> in as much as uh, what I found, Rick, when I, when I, especially 
in Parliament, there was a real sort of heaviness and burden that I felt even running a campaign, something that I was not used to. I came from a background in research, sort of dived into politics. And really, as I started talking about my my own mental health journey and how I was feeling, what was going on, it relieved some of that burden that I was feeling. So I, I wouldn't say necessarily that I was courageous or brave in as much as it was almost a little bit self-serving. Um, and I also had, was in a position of that, that power that I could talk about my mental health challenges and not worry about whether or not I was going to be fired or whether or not, you know, there was going to be some unexpected uh, impact to how I was able to operate in my day-to-day life. Now, there were some people that said to me right off the bat, well, if you can't, you know, if you're not strong enough, maybe you shouldn't be MP or something like that. Um, But those were minimal compared to the impact I had of people around me saying, thank you for speaking up. Thank you for letting me know that it's okay to not be okay. Thank you for you know, articulating, especially as a woman of color, as a black woman, how your journey was and what that looked like. And it, as it didn't manifest in crying every day, but it manifested as a change in mood and a change in motivation and how I wanted to interact with friends and family. So it was a liberating experience for me, so to speak, um, more than it was one that was a, a mindful, intentional act around courage. That's beautiful and and really well described. Uh, someone close to me uh, was seriously considering running for a municipal office in Ontario in this election season, and eventually decided not to. But when we talked about it, um, I, it really occurred to me just how stressful an occupation it is because you have. Um, yeah, the whole burden of having a campaign and people counting on you and having to be out there yeah. every day and being the jolliest <laughs> person you can be. And then the yes. realities of the job where you don't have a lot of power or influence, but people expect you to. So you've got people pulling you on all sides. Um, am I close to it? <laughs> you, you're you're hitting the nail right on the head, actually. And I found the best way to describe it, Rick, is, is when I got into rooms. I'm, I'm a trained extrovert. So I'm very much, no, no matter what you see on TV or read or see in the media, I am an introvert. I, I love staying by the fireplace with a cozy blanket. It doesn't matter what season it is. I like to just be by myself and I have a family of five and I still like to be by myself. So how I describe it is whenever I had to go out to an event in which you have to do a lot of events, door knocking, going to events, going to business openings, going to meet with constituents, I literally had to flip my switch on. So like a big generator switch that you'd like power up, you know, and then you have to get yourself sort of psyched up and ready. And then the the downside of that is when you have to power down after the event. And sometimes it would take all of the energy to stay through the event. And the power down was almost a, you know, I'm done. I cannot do this anymore. And when you think about the power and influence side, it's, it's really the great expectation that people have. And I'm not trying to dissuade people from running because clearly I had some impact speaking about things that were really important to me, talking to my constituents about things that were really important to them. Um, 
but there there is that tug of war between what you can do and sort of beating yourself your head against the wall saying like i really need to get this done and your capacity to actually execute it yeah it's uh constantly switching on and off and constantly adjusting expectations your own and others it's a it's a, a tough tough life yeah um we, 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 the best thing to do is just ask you to tell your story. Your your journey spans everything from working in politics with, with, with the prime minister to to a to a breakup, a bad breakup with the Liberal Party, um, becoming a coach, speaker, <laughs> author, and now creating your own personal uh, performance leadership app. So take us through this journey and 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 help us understand why you're doing what you're doing today. Yeah. So, you know, it's interesting. I don't think I would have been able to answer this question as effectively as I can if I didn't write my book. So I I wrote my book, uh, Can You Hear Me Now, as a, it was almost therapeutic for me. So, you know, listeners, if you, (laughs) if you are thinking of writing, or maybe you don't even write, want to write a book. I was just typing things as things were happening and not realizing how cathartic that was to just, as, as you know, you mentioned the bad breakup with the, the prime minister, as those kinds of things were happening, as I went through really three years of understanding how tokenism works and understanding that, you know, you're, you're, even in politics, as, as powerful as you might be, you, you may not get things that you want, even if they were promised. So writing about those experiences and then eventually having to write them in a book was such a, a cathartic experience. And I realized that, you know, I had to go through some of those really challenging moments in my life, those those really challenging moments, even before politics, starting a business, uh, starting a healthcare-based research management firm while I was running clinical trials and I was, you know, co-chairing large-scale epidemiology studies related to neurological conditions, doing all of these things are really stressful. And so writing down the lessons that I learned and, and the hardships that I've had, uh, you know, with my my business through politics, I recognized that it made me a more impactful, empathetic uh, uh, leader, speaker, author. And I've channeled a lot of that hurt and those mistakes and those frustrations into uh, not just my book, but into creating an app um, that really looks at leadership competencies. So how do you develop as, as a, as a business leader, as a entrepreneur, as a coach, how do you develop those leadership competencies, but also intersecting that with how do you not only develop the the leadership competencies in a traditional way, but how do you align those or intersect those with equity components so, for example, understanding how your biases influence influence your communication strategies, understanding how um, how you operate in terms of your stereotypes, for example, may influence your procurement processes or the way in which you engage your stakeholders or your shareholders. So, really putting those leadership competencies how they interplay with what we're really talking about a lot post-2020, and that is uh, diversity, equity, inclusion, how to really make them manifest in your day-to-day business life. Wow. Let's just go back a a couple of years and say, 
what were you doing that you had to put on hold in in order to uh, serve in government? And, you know, what happened with that bad breakup? So everything was on hold. <laughs> Every, you put everything on hold, to be quite honest. So uh, running as MP, of course, I, at the time in 2014, was uh, co-chairing Canada's first national epidemiology study in neurological conditions. It was funded to the tune of $15 million uh, by the previous conservative government. As soon as I declared that I was running as a liberal, guess what happens with my position within that within that enterprise? I was your decision was respected and and welcomed. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, uh, I was immediately let go from that position um, because there was, and of course, I don't I don't want to bad mouth the actual experience. But because there's so much tension in government and partisanship, there was this real sort of, we don't know if we're going to lose this funding if you declare yourself as a liberal and this funding is coming from the conservatives. So I was immediately let go. And to be a, a, you know, a breadwinner in my family, that was hard. And on top of that, when I was appointed as parliamentary secretary to the prime minister, you have to divest from your company, from you have to declare all of your assets, you need to get screened by just about every service in the government, CRA, CSIS, the whole nine. And so I had to really give up a lot of the things that I loved in terms of my business, in terms of, you know, running these studies, I had to give up seats on boards that I had. And there was there was a lot of loss. And again, I don't want to shy, you know, make people turn away from running into politics. That's just the reality. That's sort of what you have to think about as you're you're jumping into this. And it's something that I didn't think about fully before getting involved. And so the challenge with it could have been worse, though. You 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 could have been in opposition, yeah. and, and had a lot of t- lot more time for doing. Stuff. I, I exactly exactly, and so the the challenge with that, and and not really planning it with that, and I think to your listeners and probably to your friend that was that's thinking about it, you really have to plan for that, so that if these sort of inconsistencies happen, or if you know you do get elected into government and appointed that you have a contingency plan for it because it really took a lot for me to get my footing. Even after, you know, being appointed, it it took a lot because I I had lost almost a year and a half of salary and from, from, you know, the the by-election and then the general election. So it's something that people really need to think about. And then on top of that, you know, leaving the Liberal Party again, it was it was three years for me of uh, a, a painful realization that part of my role was being a black person and was being a woman in a in a government, and that tokenism that was very blatantly displayed really impacted my views around running again, and then of course everything with SNC Lavalin. It really made me not want to sit on the liberal benches and then uh, sit as an independent. So there was there was a lot to contribute to that bad breakup, to me not running 
and then for me sitting as an independent. Can you remind us what the whole SNC Lavalin thing was for those who were too busy building businesses today? <laughs> Yeah, so SNC, uh, my colleague Jody Wilson-Raybould was pressured uh, by the Prime Minister to ensure that there was there wasn't the appropriate um, uh, consequences for SNC Lavalin for some of the the um, misgivings that they were doing in business, and that's putting it quite lightly. Um, but for me, the challenge with that was the, the pressure that was put on Jody, who was the Minister of Justice and Attorney General at the time, and who later found out, you know, the Prime Minister's actions in that were deemed inappropriate. Um, you know, we had come through a whole Me Too movement where we were saying, believe women, believe women when they say they're being pressured and bullied, believe women when they're being harassed. And this is what Jody was saying. And I found it very interesting that my my party could believe her when it was convenient and leave her when it was not. And to have Jody demoted and then thrown out of the Liberal caucus and, and Jane Philpott um, as well was something that was misaligned fundamentally with my values and my principles. And so walking away from the Liberal Party at that point was an easy decision for me because it, it not only was not fair, it was fundamentally wrong. As, as a fairly new MP, became a, a principal secretary, that's generally a fast track to cabinet. Yes. You're a very... You, 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 you're very well educated, have lots of experience. You'd be a natural for that. Where did you feel the tokenism came? Yeah, so came I'm going to correct that sentence because I didn't feel it. <laughs> it actually happened, and I'm, I'm I'm just doing that. I'm 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 making a point here because oftentimes I don't get to explain myself in these situations. So, in the first year of uh, that, I was parliamentary secretary to prime minister. I was only there for one year because I resigned after the first year, which was not public. Nobody knew that I resigned from that position. It was just very quiet. But during that first year of 2016 to 2017, everybody knows that, you know, Trudeau traveled quite a bit. He he actually was criticized often for, you know, being in international media more than he was in Canadian media. And as a parliamentary secretary, basically what you do is you tag team with your minister. So whether it's finance or the prime minister or the minister of whatever, you play sort of a tag team role. So if the, the prime minister is on the east, you go on the west. So if he's on the north, you're on the south. So you're kind of you know covering all bases and really making sure that you are serving Canadians as much as possible because you have this, you know, this person that you could lend support or could lend support to your agenda. Well, the only three events that I was invited to attend on an international basis, the only, the only events that I was invited to were th these three events, and they were all related to the Black community. The first was the White House dinner, um, which people would think, oh my God, like, that's awesome. Why, why would you think that that's tokenism? Well, I wasn't actually invited to the dinner. Uh, <laughs> I was invited to go just to meet Barack Obama. And then that was it. I didn't have any other role to play and I was not invited to the dinner. Um, and other unelected officials were invited. So there was capacity. I just wasn't invited. And then uh, the second was the opening of the National African American Museum in Washington, D.C. And the last was the inauguration of President Akufo Otto in Ghana. 
And looking back, there were many other opportunities for me to attend international events that were outside of just Black community events. And I was not. And so it was glaringly obvious to me that although I told the prime minister during our first meeting in December of 2015, I said, I do not want to be your parliamentary secretary. And I'm quoting myself here. I do not want to be your parliamentary secretary to fill any gender or racial gaps you think you have in your cabinet. I'm perfectly happy being the member of parliament for Whitby. I told him that probably as a warning, because I I did not want to be tokenized. I wanted to be utilized for my brain, for my capacity, for the things that, you know, I had been doing in my business long before. I wanted to be paid for the fact that I have an MBA in healthcare management and an an executive MBA. I wanted to help him achieve the agenda that we had set forward for Canadians and at the end of that year, when I saw how blatant how blatant that tokenism was, I said, I'm done. Since we're here to talk about mental health, I'd love to dig down this just a tiny little bit deeper. How does it feel when you know that you've been put in this position? You did everything you could not to be, and yet it happened. How does that affect your mental health, your sense of power, your relationship to other people's power? I'm tearing up as you're asking this question. <laughs> um, I, I, I honestly, I don't think I could get over that impact, to be honest with you. I've, sorry, oh my God, <laughs> to your listeners. Um, I, you, you don't, you don't quite get over it as much as you want on the emotional level. And so, yes, you know, I've, I've built an app. I've done certain things to, to, fix as much as I can that model, but I don't, it's, it's very debilitating. It messes with your psyche. It messes with your person. And I'm someone who has very strong self-esteem. I am able to walk in my own two feet and I'm a very strong person, but to see it done so blatantly and knowing that my job, my title, my education, no matter how hard I worked, no matter how long the hours I put in, did not protect me from that, was a sobering reality that actually fueled some of the conversations I had later on in politics, like, you know, um, the viral speech where I wore braids in my hair and spoke about body shaming or challenging Maxine Bernier's views. It fueled some of that because I knew that there were people out there who experienced that tokenism, that discrimination on a regular basis, and there's nobody there to say anything or to stand up for them. And in as much as it hurt, it was used as leverage, as fuel for for other things. Right. Well, thank you for standing up and responding and, and as you say, diverting that energy, using that energy, leveraging it and and, and sharpening it and directing it. Uh, because I know these things happen to so many people in so many different types of organizations and so many roles. And it's a, it's a shame when it happens. And I hope they can learn to bounce back as 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 you've done. Obviously, it takes time and, uh, and it goes deep. I'm still tearing up, so... <laughs> 
it's a it's a process but 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 this this conversation is critically important because a lot of your listeners who have intersecting identities whether whether it's gender or race or ability or religion or socioeconomic status are going to face these challenges and i want them to know that even as strong as i may appear to be i it still hurts and but we can't let it stop us exactly your book is the subtitle of your book. It's Can You Hear Me Now? How I Found My Voice and Learned to Live with Passion and Purpose. So what's your purpose now? My purpose now is to actually really help organizations and individuals be the most strategic that they could be when it comes to creating equitable spaces. Um, and when I say strategic, I'm, I'm intentional with that word because it's not just about saying let's let's have a diverse workforce or let's be um, diverse in our communities or in our spaces, but how do you make that sustainable? How do you develop the empathetic courage to allow you to be equitable in a way that promotes justice? So my purpose right now is really using all of those things that were really painful and you may think, oh, your, your passion is driven by your pain. Yes, my passion is driven by some of those really painful moments where I felt excluded, where I felt like my voice wasn't heard, where I felt like I couldn't stand up for myself. And using those moments to say, here, here's how we can make our communities better. Here's how we can make our organizations better. Here's how we can make our world better. And here's how, with a little bit of empathy, with a little bit of compassion for each other, we could save the frayed fragments of our humanity that have been lost, especially over the last few yeah. years. Writers and artists have always turned their pain into art, into yes. something that that they can share with other people and, and, and communicate their experience and hopefully share coping strategies. Um, how did you feel about releasing your, your, your story? Did you think that this was going to help other people? Did you think that it was going to be therapeutic for you? I didn't think it was going to be therapeutic for me until it was. I, did. <laughs> um, I didn't think it was going to help other people until it did. And I didn't think it was going to help the range of people that it helped until it did. So I'll give you an example. One of the first people that I heard back from, and I think he tweeted it, his last name is McKinnon. Um, he looks like an older white gentleman. And he sent me a message and said, oh my God, our stories are so similar. You know, I loved your book. And I'm just like, huh? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> what is similar? But this is where I talk about our humanity, right? So we think we're so dramatically different from each other. But when we peel back all of the facade of, you know, our exterior and the social media sort of persona that we put out there, and we just speak about the real, raw, human side of ourselves, there is so much more that connects us than can ever divide us. And if we get past even that little superficial surface discussions or the surface context that we see that's being further perpetuated by, by social media, we could then start to really understand our humanity and our connectiveness to each other. And that really 
for me is how you transform that pain into something beautiful, right? How you transform your pain into your passion, your hurt into your purpose, your mistakes into your message. That is how that happens. That's how that beauty is created. Um, But you have to be vulnerable. And I think I was really vulnerable in that book intentionally, maybe not knowingly, but intentionally vulnerable, knowing that somebody out there, maybe just one person, but one other person who's been screwing up in university or or not being as successful in launching that first year of their business or thinking things are going to fail or having to dumpster dive for their furniture um, when they're when they're in that first year of business, somebody out there would read that book and say, holy, I'm not that bad. <laughs> or Holy, I am that bad, but there is light at the end of the tunnel. So yeah, it was it was so therapeutic and the response from people has been absolutely generous, gracious, and amazing. According to the publishers, sorry, whose name I forget. <laughs> Penguin Random House? That's it, Penguin Random yeah. House. Basically, it's a national bestseller. What yes. So, so in the first week, and I really want to thank uh, Canadians coast to coast to coast just for their love. Uh, when the book was launched in February 2021, it debuted on the Globe and Mail's uh, bestseller list at number four. Uh, I will take it. I will take number four for you know my first my first foray into authorship. Uh, it, it just it just resonated with people. It was it was just really a fantastic a fantastic sort of launch launch off into this amazing chapter in my life. No pun intended. (laughs) Well, fantastic. Congratulations on that. Thank you. The other people who turn trauma into something new, another type of artist is the entrepreneur. Uh, I, I, one of my sayings uh, through my career of studying entrepreneurs and working with them is that nothing creates better entrepreneurs than bad bosses. Uh, When you're in a difficult situation, when you're not allowed to be yourself, when you're not allowed to do the work that you were born to do, um, that's what creates entrepreneurs. That's what makes them say, at some point, finally, they've had enough. Mm -hmm. They say, okay, I'm going to do this. And hopefully they do it in a sense of, I'll prove to myself I can do it as opposed to I will bury you. But sometimes <laughs> they, they say I will bury you to the company they leave and they go out and do it their way and create something new and exciting that they're passionate about and fully committed to. Right. And you've done that in your way. It sounds like you've rebuilt your life to, to, to focus on, on, on your passions and, and, and get your story out and also to help other people. So, so tell us about, about the app, Maximizing You? Yeah. So before I do that, I just want to pick up on that point, you know, turning trauma into triumph is what entrepreneurs or anyone who has an entrepreneurial spirit does really well. And you don't have to leave your company necessarily to be an entrepreneur. You could sometimes do that within an organization, launching new products, new services, whatever. And I think this is why you know, this app is so important is because with this great exodus, we're seeing people leave because they are un- in- they're inhibited from being their 100% self in the workplace. 
And often those are people with intersecting identities, meaning, you know, their, their gender, their race, their abilities, their, their religion, their socioeconomic status, the things that make them them, they have to leave, you know, part of it at home. They have to leave part of who they are, their identity um, outside of work because they're afraid to bring it in or they're, they're afraid to, to actually express themselves in the workplace. And so people leave and they express themselves in different places. They they start businesses. One of the fastest growing demographics of entrepreneurs in North America right now are black women. And that's not by accident. That's often because, you know, we have to straighten our hair and sort of walk the talk and code switch. And that is really impactful on how we're able to live our lives and on our mental health. So in starting Maximizing You and building an app, that really helped organizations. And, and when you when you put it throughout your organization, what it helps you do is using this, this asynchronous sort of learning model, you are able then to give it to your employees or to your leadership and use this sort of personalized approach that uses a lot of business research, a lot of self-reflection, a lot of activities to develop those empathetic leaders who understand the value of diversity, who engage in intentional conversations about inclusion, and who use their or use their intersecting identities or their identities to foster, you know, a culture of equity and justice within a, within a workspace to give people that sense of belonging. So it's not just about saying, you know, here's our leadership competencies, but it's also about saying, how could we create leaders or create space for leaders to bring their 100% self to work so that they don't leave? Because I, I, I think people like security. <laughs> they like workspaces. They like to be in spaces that they're valued and that they're, they're appreciated and if that isn't happening, we see what's happening right now with the great exodus. We see companies struggling to hold on to people. And even when we think about entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs are eventually going to hire people in their business. So this is not just about people who own you know, traditional businesses. This app is for the entrepreneur to say, how can we do this better? How can we build a better mousetrap, so to speak, when we're building our own enterprise, when we're building this business, so that we really allow those individuals to come in and contribute 100% of who they are to our product, our service, our policy, our initiative. Clearly, you, you, you're you more optimistic about the potential of bigger organizations than, than I am, but, but that's good. <laughs> we need big organizations to be uh, as effective as they can possibly be, so I hope that works. Just, just tell us a little bit about how Maximizing You works. You call it a leadership development platform. Uh, is, is it for individuals yeah. or for organizations or both? It's for both. So it, it's 15 modules. So what I've done over, especially the years that I ran my business, um, Resolve Research Solutions, I'll tell you how the app started. So the app started maybe 15 years ago or 20 years ago when I started this company. And every time I would make a mistake in business, I would write it down. You know, never take the first offer. Even things like just you know, silly things like that. Like the first time I signed a contract and I just, I was so excited to get it. I just signed it and sent it back and then met with a few other people who had also signed the similar contract and realized they made three times more than what I made because I was just excited and I took the first offer. So never take the first offer. Um, 
you know, how fear manifests itself, how imposter syndrome manifests itself, how, um, how to communicate effectively, how to network, you know, the lessons that I learned in networking. So I wrote all of these things down on this little piece of paper. And then I was, as I was developing the app, I'm a big fan of the Harvard Business Review. So I would read all of their research articles and really just synthesize the material. So synthesize those research articles into sometimes even as small as an infographic, just showing people, for example, how to make, what is the research behind making better decisions? And I put all of those things into the app. So so 15 modules and each module is broken up in this way. So you open it up, module one, and you have the lesson. So the lesson is about decision-making or fear. Lesson one is actually about fear. So you open it up and you read the research, you read sort of the the story that I have to tell about fear or about decision-making. Then you go on to the activity. So the activity gives you some challenges to help you in your day-to-day life figure out how you personally will operationalize that lesson around fear or decision-making or, you know, networking. That then another lesson or another activity, so there's usually one or two activity, might be how you are going to do those things from an equity point of view. So how are you going to challenge your bias? How are you going to challenge your stereotypes? How are you going to maximize or leverage diversity in order to get those things done? And then the last part of it, so the third part, is that self-reflection, looking back on the lesson, looking back on sort of the week of your work and how you implemented it and what that would do. So it really is very much for individuals, but when organizations implement it, they have a tangible way of demonstrating their commitment to equity because they've given it to all of their employees to use. And is, is, are you finding, uh, you know, are men taking this up as, as, as well as women? Are you, are you seeing there's some? <laughs> everybody. Oh, everybody, men, women, gender diverse folks um, across the age continuum. So I collect data on who's using it. So it's across the age continuum. I get as many, you know, uh, 15 to 25 year olds using it as, as people who are, are 45 plus. And yeah, because I think people are genuinely just interested in how to make themselves better and what's, what that, and I I don't think that there has been an app that's been created that looked at leadership competencies in a way that intersects equity. So you usually get like these equity training, how to do unconscious bias, how to, you know, anti-oppression, anti-racism, but how does that, how does that look in the real world? They are not standalone items. You can't just expect people to be spoon fed or, you know, drinking from a, 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 gar- a, a watering hose, this information about unconscious bias when they don't know how it actually applies in their hiring practices or in how they act in their community with their neighbors. It has to be brought down to the the ground level to the personalized level. And this app creates that personalized approach that integrates those leadership skills with research, with self-reflection, with equity outcomes. And is there a plan behind the app? Is, it, is, is, is this an ongoing business? Do you have a strategy around ways to grow it or build it? <laughs> oh my gosh. So now all the entrepreneurs are going to be like, what? 
No, I don't. I don't have a plan. I, I, I actually don't they have didn't a plan. Start with a plan either. Don't worry. <laughs> okay. I, I don't have a plan for it only because I have so many things going on. I, I pushed out the book. I pushed out the app. I'm doing my PhD right now. So I really don't have the time. And I think this is just being very honest about what where I am in my life. I really wanted the app out there. Um, it needs to go through a second iteration. It's not, it's, it's a little clunky. The content is good, but the presentation is a, is really a little clunky. So I, I want to get it sort of refreshed. And once I'm able to do that, I have capacity and time to do that. I think then I'll put the plan together to really push it out there. So if an entrepreneur listening to this show who, who builds the, uh, platforms for a living if they wanted to reach out to you and say hey let's see how we can help uh, take this to the next level you wouldn't say no oh my god i would say yes oh my god no, yes you wouldn't yes. accept their first there. but please please help me <laughs> that'd be great well maybe that'll happen it's happened before um just looking back at government and you know the situation you went through do you think anybody learned anything from that do you think anything has changed that would make uh things happen differently the next time? Man, that is a great question. And I, I'm not, I'm not sure because we really still see some pretty interesting things happening. You know, I was, I was reading this, this article today with Pierre Poliver and his challenges with, uh, with, you know, Mackenzie from the, uh, Diagalon group, like a far right group. And, you know, you know, you court individuals like this, and then when they say things that are hideous um, and attack people's families, you, you scratch your head and wonder why. Well, you flirted with disaster, and you didn't cut it off right away, and and now you're surprised that it's coming back to to haunt you. You know, when we really think about how people are impacted and hurt by injustices that happen across our country. We need our leaders to really step up and give an example of what not to do and what to do that is right by ordinary people. So I, I'm, I'm not really sure that the lessons have really come across and not, not because people are, are not trying. There's some really great people across communities doing work that are really trying it's just not resonating enough. And maybe I'm, I'm, I want things to happen faster. Maybe that was my downfall in going into government in the first place because things don't operate as fast. But I, my expectation is that the world does look at justice from a different perspective and look at equity from a different perspective, especially post-2020, especially after pandemic and all of the events with the unearthing of you know, ch children's bodies from residential schools and George Floyd, we really got to start doing things better. And I'm not seeing it translate in our action of our politicians, and most definitely in their policies. The good news on that is that nothing was ever accomplished by people who were satisfied. So right. satisfied people who make things happen and improve things, come up with new ideas and, and make the world a better place. Do you have any final words of advice or any resources you'd like to share with your audience that could help them the better support them and their mental health? You've been through a lot. Anything you've learned, used, <laughs> leveraged? 
Yeah. So what we didn't talk about on this show, and I'm doing a lot, but I'm actually a, have just finished a certification with uh, Deepak Chopra's Global Center on, um, as a health instructor and as a meditation instructor and as a, as a coach. So I've done those certification processes. And one of the things that have really helped me with my uh, mental health struggles, and even now to create some clarity to really allow me to hone into my creativity is understanding the the pillars of those practices of meditation and yoga practices. And really it's around, you know, I, I meditate every morning, clear my head when I feel myself panicking, just taking that little breath to stop and just breathe. And a lot of this stuff is incorporated into my app as well, um, sort of nuanced in there as well. Uh, but just taking that time to breathe, eating properly, sleeping eight hours a night, believe it or not, from 10 to six o'clock. It's a very, I try to be as regimented as possible. Controlling sort of my emotions, really just living my best, healthiest well-being of a life and uh, using a lot of that struggle that we talked about earlier to understand where I am right now and to, to be grateful for where I am right now. So, you know, I, I think people out there tend to believe that some of these, these activities are softer, they're sort of woo-woo. But I would say, you know what, do what is right for you when it comes to your mental health and mix and match every single possible option when it comes to making yourself well. That involves this physical, the mental, as well as the spiritual uh, well-being. One final, final question. Um, you, just, you, you just mentioned, you know, dr- drawing on various techniques and principles in order to, 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 to build yourself and, and, and keep forging ahead. What's the intersection between mental health and physical health, do you think? Okay, so not to get too, you know, esoteric on it. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, this is the closing part. You can be I think the intersection is is where you find joy. Right. So it's where you find that sense of joy and that sense of peace. And oftentimes we fight with our physical self and our mental self because I, we think that our joy needs to be sort of calibrated by the external world. And it does not. Whatever brings you joy, whatever brings you peace, whatever is your dharma, your ikigai, whatever you want to call that thing that allows you to wake up in the morning and feel awesome about going through your day, that's where your physical meets your mental, meets your spiritual well-being, and they all sing together. That is that universal, that one voice, that that presence of spirit that allows that to happen. And everybody knows what it is for themselves. Oftentimes, they limit it and therefore limit their physical, mental, and spiritual joy because they're listening to what other people are saying to them. And they're, they're wondering what other people are going to think about this. Stop doing that. Live in that intersection of joy and you will have a blissful, blissful life. 
Wow. Thank you for singing with us today. It's been an incredible conversation. Thank you for having me. This was fun. I can't believe we're done. So I've been talking with Selena Caesar Chavan, business consultant, former MP for Whitby, empowering entrepreneur, PhD candidate. What the heck? Your ambition <laughs> leaves me in awe. You're, you, we can follow you at I am Selena CC on Twitter. And Selena is spelt with the first letter C. So I am Selena CC. So I urge everyone to follow along on your journey because it sounds like a, a, a journey that can save us all a lot of trouble. <laughs> yeah. One would hope. Selena, thank you so much. We'll look forward to talking to you again. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you to all your listeners. I appreciate being here. Thank you so much for tuning into another episode of the Startup Canada podcast. This show is produced by Lauren Hicks and Maddie Stiles, and it's made possible by the support of MasterCard and Scotiabank. Be sure to tune in every Tuesday for a new episode. Until next week, I'm your host, Rick Spence.